They had to stop the trial because it was unethical to continue to give people placebo given the statistical significance of the finding. So this kind of gives you an idea of the power of the numbers uh, so far. Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bakhtari, MD, Dr. Bakhtari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bakhtari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome to another episode of Bakhtari MD. Today we're going to be talking about the new COVID pill, molnopiravir. And what I want to talk to you guys about is the whole story, uh, the results of Merck's study and how it might impact this pandemic. Just to give you a little background, this drug has been around for a while, at least uh, what it's metabolized to. We'll call that for our purposes, NHC. And NHC, uh, when it goes into your system, prevents adequate viral replication. And so the hope is that this drug uh, will make an impact on COVID-19 and how it um, how it plays out in infected people. So I'm going to go over Merck's uh, data that they released. Merck did a study in about 1,500 people. What they found is they broke into two groups. Uh, these groups, one had never had the vaccine. Number two had at least one risk factor for severe COVID-19 outcome. In addition, they had to be very early on in their illness within five days of symptoms, and they had to have a documented case. I think people ask, where the heck did they find 1,500 people that were not vaccinated and had risk factors? I think part of that answer is that this study was done all around the world. It was conducted in 170 sites including Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Egypt, France, Germany, Guatemala, Israel, Italy, Japan, Mexico, Philippines, Poland, Russia, South Africa, Spain, Sweden, Thailand, Ukraine, United Kingdom, and the United States. What was interesting is that it was blinded, so neither the doctor or the patient knew if they were getting placebo or they were getting the actual medication that we were studying. And what they looked for was hospitalization and death. And dramatically, the death rate and hospitalization dropped by 50% in this two groups. 7.3% of patients who received molnupiravir were hospitalized or died through day 29 following randomization, compared to 14.1% in the placebo-treated group wound up actually getting hospitalized or or dying. Interestingly, the hospitalization was cut, but there was actually no deaths in the molnopiravir group. So that's very interesting. So the data was so compelling that a third party who had access to the data found that they had to stop the trial because it was unethical to continue to give people placebo given the statistical significance of the finding. So this kind of gives you an idea of the power of the numbers um, so far. And because of that, the trial was stopped. And now Merck is asking or planning on asking for emergency use authorization um, 
of this uh, drug. The other good news in terms of side effects that the placebo group and the control group that got the drug had no significant differences in side effect profile during the study. So in terms of tolerating the drug versus the placebo, they were equal. So that's excellent news in terms of side effect. The other interesting thing about this trial is that it really did take into account all the latest variants, including gamma, delta, and the mu variant. This included some of the more difficult variants in the trial. So what do we make of this uh, data? Well, I mean, it's, first of all, it's excellent in the sense that conceptually having a oral antiviral that we can give early in the disease that can change the course of the disease would be really pretty historic. And it would also be pretty historic to come find an antiviral this quickly to an outbreak of a pandemic with a new novel virus. How this happened is partly because just like with Moderna, some of this stuff was already on the shelf in terms of looking at using this drug with other viruses and other breakouts in the last uh, 10, 15 years. NAC, which is the breakdown product of molnupiravir, has been tried in other RNA viruses, such as in MERS, which shows it has some activity. The question really had always in the past been, you know, the side effect profile and if it could cause other problems. Now I want to go over how molnupiravir works. And to understand how it works, uh, we need to understand what it is that it's doing. First of all, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is an mRNA vaccine. And mRNA is a type of genetic code. And Basically, the building blocks of mRNA is basically four different compounds. These compounds are ribonucleotides. That's the name for them. You can see in this graph that there's four types of ribonucleotides. There's uridine, cystidine, adenosine, and guanosine. These four makes up make up the building block of most RNA, all RNA. So if you look at RNA as a long choo-choo train, what you will find that these are the different carts that make up the train. So the entire train is made out of these four carts in different order and different sequence depending on what kind of RNA it is. So basically, imagine the SARS-CoV-2 virus RNA coming into a cell as a long choo-choo train with these carts. They will be made out of these four building blocks. Once the RNA gets into your cell, it has to then replicate. It has to make billions of copies of itself and infect more and then get out of that cell and infect more cells. So what it's going to do inside your cell is it's going to try to replicate itself. Molnupiravir breaks down to NHC, which then mimics two of those building blocks. It actually mimics cytosine or uridine. And when the virus is looking for more building blocks to build a new strand of RNA, it accidentally uses this instead of cytosine or uracil. And when that happens, it incorporates it, but the structure of this is not able to be stabilized. And that virus basically dies because it incorporated the wrong building block into its chain. So this is a very exquisite way of damaging the replication of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. We're basically putting into the soup ingredients that it needs to build more copies of itself. But 
we're camouflaging, in this case, this drug to make it look like one of the natural building blocks it would need. So again, it's a very, very exquisite way of attacking a virus by feeding it building blocks that it thinks are the natural building blocks to make more of itself, only to find out that it's not. And if you really enjoyed content like this, please stay tuned because we're gonna come up with more. One of our goals in this channel is to take all this noise around the pandemic vaccine, all the data that's coming from left, right, and center, and make sense of it. And you know, just give it to you in, in terms that you can understand and, only, and also use. As you go on the internet and look at different uh, content, it can be confusing. What does this mean? Is this for real? So what we're gonna do is we're gonna review the scientific data like we did today in detail, but break it down so we just cover the stuff that really matters and things that you can really use to make decisions about how to proceed as this pandemic continues to unfold. So this kind of is an amazing accomplishment. Now, there was some concern that if we're giving this building block to make RNA, could this building block be changed slightly so it can be used in the host DNA, meaning the person taking it? Meaning could it alter when DNA replicates in the patient taking this drug, could it damage the DNA structure as it replicates and creates more DNAs? You know, cells are always dividing. When they divide, they need to make copies of their DNA. It's like if you get a cut, you're going to eventually grow new skin. That all comes from d more DNA being replicated, creating new cells that then cover that, that wound. But we, we do that in many ways all throughout our body, our skin, our GI tract, everywhere. So DNA is being replicated. Is it possible that this drug can get incorporated into DNA? So there was an article, which I'm going to put in the link below, saying whether uh, this uh, NAC could be mutagenic in mammalian cells. I won't go through the whole article. Suffice it to say, a lot of this was done in a test tube. There was a response to that letter published in the same medical journal, criticizing it for saying that it wasn't done in animals, but it was done in a test tube. They did it in rats and pigs and found that it was safe. And Merck's own data says that it is safe. Obviously, we only have the top line data from what Merck submitted. We don't have all of that data. It's not being peer reviewed. But assuming they have data, then we can go on that. Interestingly, in the study, they didn't allow pregnant women to enter it, and they did not allow people to potentially get pregnant, meaning they, uh, they had to wear condoms and birth control. So pregnancy did not occur. Either a male or female subject was taking this. And I think it's partly because of this in-test tube concern that it may cause problems uh, and, and mutations in human DNA. That's just a concern. Uh, but let's now move on to what this really means. If we can actually find an oral pill that can alter the course of COVID, that would for sure be a game changer. Now, of course, this is meant to be in conjunction with the vaccine because this treats the disease, vaccine prevents the disease. So you know, obviously we want to prevent the disease first, but even in breakthrough cases, this may not be a bad strategy. Now we do have one other drug that we know alters the course, maybe even slightly better than this in people who've caught the infection, which is the monoclonal antibodies. So the monoclonal antibodies have even a greater reduction 
of hospitalization and and death than this. But the problem with that is currently it's an IV form. You have to go and to a hospital or some other setting and get an IV. Although there's some suggestion that it may come out as a shot, so you don't actually have to get an IV. That hasn't happened yet, but it's not as simple as taking an oral medication. The other thing which would be interesting is, you know, maybe taking this oral medication with the antibody, with the monoclonal antibody. So I think if this does turn out to be efficacious, then what about taking it with the monoclonal antibodies and see if there's a synergistic impact of taking both? The other thing about this study is it was done early in the study when viral replication was just beginning. I'm sure it would be great if this also helped in people who are hospitalized. Remember, all these people were not hospitalized prior to the study, but what about using this drug in hospitalized patients who are severely ill or moderately ill and trying to make a difference there? And lastly, in the group that they're also looking at now is what about giving this to uh, household members of people who have COVID in, or, in order to prevent them from getting it. So what we call prophylaxis. We do this often with tuberculosis and other things and HIV, where we give you a medication just because we think you've been exposed and hope that you know this reduces the chances of you getting it, period. And lastly, what about the impact of this on the long haul syndrome that we see with a lot of people who've had it? You know, can this make an impact on that? So in other words, not only you know, not have you get in the hospital, not only not have you die, but also what about lowering your chances? Uh, so we're looking at this as potentially treatment, obviously. We're looking as prevention, and we're also looking at prophylaxis. Those are three separate things that an ideal drug like this could, could have an impact on. The one other thing I just really want to clarify is just like with ivermectin, where people said, well, I'm not going to take the vaccine. I'm just going to take ivermectin. I just want people to know that's really how medicine does not work. In medicine, we do all the above that works. In other words, when you go get knee surgery, we sterilize the room, we sterilize, you know, your knee, we sterilize anything that touches your knee. It's all of the above to get the maximal efficacy. So even if there is a great treatment, you obviously do not want to miss prevention with ivermectin and any other drug that may or may not in the future show promise. Even if it shows promise, even if it proves to be efficacious, vaccines are still part of the equation because if we can prevent it, that's the first line of defense. And we need to keep adding different lines of defenses to maximize uh, outcome. Even from a population point of view, we're going to have a better outcome if we use everything at our disposal than just say, okay, this works, so I can ignore that. I mean, look at this study. I think this study, you know, people for people who look at ivermectin and they do all this meta-analysis and they do observational studies. Remember, we're talking about meta-analysis, which is just compiling a bunch of often observational studies. And then you're also looking at true uh, observational studies versus what Merck did here. Merck did this with scientific rigor. They took two controlled groups, right? And they blinded not only the patient, but they blinded the, the doctors giving the medicine. And they had a third party monitor the results. So when we use that kind of scientific rigor, we won't be hand-wringing if ivermectin works. Obviously, Merck has a lot of money, and they can spend a lot of money making sure 
These clinical trials are very powerful and meticulous, and they're known for that because there's so much money at stake, I would imagine. But, you know, if ivermectin turns out to work, it's going to need strong double-blinded clinical trials with placebo group and then the drug group, and and we'll find out. I mean, it's it's really, that's what it's going to take. Now, some people make the argument, well, ivermectin is so cheap, who's going to put the money into that study? And with molnupiravir, uh, the dose is $700 for a five-day course, and ivermectin is just pennies or dollars. So, you know, someone can make the argument that where is the clinical trials? But that's what we need. We need strong clinical trials, double-blinded, placebo-controlled studies looking at efficacy. And if we get that, we won't have to have arguments. I mean, like, for example, like one of one of the interesting things is just a theory I heard, but like, let's take, this is why observational studies are so bad. Like ivermectin is a very strong anti-parasite. And a lot of these observational studies came from Bangladesh, whatever, which have tons and tons of parasite infections in the normal population. And so, you know, if someone gets COVID and simultaneously you treat their intestinal parasites inadvertently by giving them ivermectin, you know, are they dying at a higher rate because they already, you know, have all these parasites in them to begin with? I'm just saying, I mean, these are how, this is why you need double-blinded control studies because you all these variables may throw you off. Does that make sense? I mean, is it possible we're inadvertently treating parasitic infections you know, when you do these observational studies in parts of the world where parasitic infections are very common? So we know in this study, they're looking at molnupiravir as a early treatment within the first five days of catching the disease and having a positive test and being an outpatient. We know that was part of this study. The question really is, can we extrapolate this and give this to people later in the disease, maybe further out than five days, or maybe when they're hospitalized? So that's one area of looking at where in the progression of the disease will this drug still be effective? The other question is, can we give it to prevent from catching it. And I think that study is ongoing where you look at family members who are given this pill, who have a positive family member in the household, and you look at, in a controlled fashion, a thousand families that get the placebo and a thousand families that get the active drug, and then you see you know, which one had a higher rate of transmission to household members. That would be strong evidence in terms of preventing actual disease by taking the medication when you're about to be exposed or you are being exposed. So that information is going to be really, really helpful. Then to sort of extrapolate if you just, you know, if you're going to be in a high risk situation or you are at high risk for contracting it, that would be down the road of just taking it prophylactically in general. But, you know, a lot of these drugs, you know, when you look at the side effect profile, if we have any concern that this drug has a, a a serious side effect profile. Obviously, taking it long term would not be ideal if if that were the case. So you know, a lot of drugs may be very toxic if you take them for months or years, but you can get away potentially with taking them for five days. So whether something is safe for five days is not the same thing whether it's safe for six months or a year. So that would be another level of sorting out side effect profiles because you know you can try a drug for five days in a clinical study and even follow them up long term and say 
you know, there's no side effects from taking a drug for five days, two, three years later. But it, if you're going to take a drug for a year or six months, that is a different ballgame. So if it's proven to be safe after taking it for five days, you can't extrapolate and say, okay, safe now to take this for six months. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, BakhtariMD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. And as always, I'll see you next week on another episode of Bakhtari MD. Take care and be well. <music>